Welcome to Working Knowledge, Labor and Jewish Thought. If this is the correct, if that's the, if that sounds like a good idea, then congratulations, you're in the right space. And to those of us joining, and to those of us joining in on Facebook Live, welcome as well. Um, just a few notes, points of etiquette tonight. Um, feel free to ask questions in the chat. They will be monitored. Um, yes, this includes you on Facebook Live, and source sheets will be handed out momentarily. And if you get an invitation to be promoted to panelists, um, please consider taking it. That way you can be, in, be seen and be seen. Otherwise, I have the pleasure of welcoming you all to Working Knowledge, Labor and Jewish Thought. This class of David Speak Common is on the topic of how most of life is work of one kind or another, and even our rest is often defined by the work that we left behind. And the first half of this series will explore how changing notions of labor have influenced core pieces of the Jewish tradition, including the meaning of Shabbat and what it means to study Torah. And tonight's class is, is on the topic of becoming Torah smiths, rabbis as artisans. And to teach us tonight, we have the pleasure of learning from Dr. David Svee-Kalman. He is scholar in residence and director of New Media at Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, where he was also a member of the inaugural cohort of the North American David Hartman Center Fellows. He leads the Kagad Research Center on Judaism and the Natural World. Um, he is he, is, he holds a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. His research touches on Jewish law, the history of technology, techno technology and ethics, material culture, and Islamic jurisprudence. He's the owner of Printo, Printo Cresp, which some of you may be familiar with, um, and the KLMNOPS Art House. Good evening. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a really a pleasure learning with all of you tonight. Um, and I want to start by giving an introduction, which I, I hope you have not heard too many versions of before, because I know this is not the only class that you're listening to about the concept of work. Um, so I want to give like a, a short piece that explains why I think this subject is important and what is motivating these particular four classes. Um, I think it's pretty clear here in 2022 that we're at a turning point in the way that people relate to work. This is both because of the pandemic it's also because of increased automation, mechanization. Uh, it's also because of, a, a, to be quite honest, a, a growing anti-work movement as well, which I think has grown in popularity in America in particular. Um, our feelings towards work change uh, dramatically and have changed dramatically over the last few years. Um, I think many of us have a feeling that we don't want tech companies to decide the correct relationship that we have to work, that we want to decide the relationship that is appropriate between us and our work. Um, but in order to do that, we need to have a sense of what's the right way to actually think about work, um, both as a mode of living and as an ideal. Um, we ask ourselves questions like, is work inherently important? Um, is it important to enjoy the work that you do? Um, and what's the appropriate relationship between your work and your Torah? Uh, how, off, how should you divide your time between the two? How should you think about work? Uh, how, do you, how should you think about Torah as either being kind of the majority of what you do if you choose that kind of path? How should you think about Torah as kind of living in the margins of your life if the work that you do is not you know, within Judaism, which is true for the vast majority of people and the vast majority of Jews? So I hope we get to address those questions in this class. Um, Today, we're going to talk about whether Torah can be understood as a form of work, and if it is, then what kind of work is it? The next class, we're going to talk about Shabbat um, and about what it means to think about Shabbat in relationship to the kinds of work that people do in the 21st century, as opposed to, say, the work that people did before the Industrial Revolution. Um, and then for the last two sessions, we're going to kind of look outwards. First of all, ask, how do we decide what kind of work matters? 
and how do we kind of implicitly and explicitly create hierarchies of work? And then also, is it possible for Judaism to create better label con labor conditions uh, going into the future? Um, I just say the last thing before I start is to, to kind of ask a question, which is always the kind of like, you know, the elephant in the room in discussions like this, like, who cares what Judaism has to say about this? Who cares what Jews have to say about this? Like, we represent a tiny part of the American labor, labor force. Um, I think the answer for this in particular is that um, work and technology today are intimately linked, and our feelings towards technology are always new, and they will always be new because technology isn't developing so rapidly. In moments when technology is new and our relationship to work is new, when our feelings about how do I actually value the choices in front of me um, is a fresh one, those are actually exactly the moments when it's most important and most uh, when you really need to ask the question of, well, where should I put my chips in this? Where should I be actually, how should I be, how should I be valuing these things? Um, and in those situations, having religious leadership is incredibly important. Not to kind of like, you know, put a finger on the scale on some position that's already been developed, but actually to develop new positions and to kind of like be trailblazers. So I think on these questions in particular, having religious leadership and Jewish leadership is incredibly important. That is my opening spiel. Now let's actually talk about the, 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 the session today. Um, we are talking about what it means to think about Torah um, as a kind of activity, not just as something that's in your life, but as, as a kind of activity within your life. Um, and the opening question I want to ask you, I want you to kind of contemplate this for a second, is when you think about Torah, when you think about Torah study, is it closer to being work or is it closer to being play? So let's just like kind of like play it out for a second, right? You know, how is Torah like work? Torah is like work in the sense that it's hard. <laughs> it can be very hard. Um, especially if, you know, you're learning something which you don't particularly enjoy. Um, especially, you know, close readings of text can be difficult. Sometimes it literally is work, right? It can be work for your school. It can be, it can be part of your educational path. So even if you don't care about the things that you are learning in particular, you know, like, oh, well, I need to receive an, uh, you know, an A in this class in order to achieve the next level of success if you're in a day school system, right? Um, it can also be play, right? It can be play in the sense that um, often when you learn Torah, it's the striving that you care about. You don't necessarily care about the end product. You care about the process of learning itself. It doesn't need to have a practical purpose at all. Um, it can have competition, but that competition can be friendly and it can be fun. So you can kind of imagine Torah sitting in this balance between work on the one hand and play on the other hand. Um, and this question is kind of like motivated for me as with many other questions of how to answer the question of like, what is Torah like? What is the things in Jewish life like? And I think this is not just my question. It's a question that many people have asked um, around Jewish topics. And I think here it's actually helpful to put uh, Judaism on the, uh, it's helpful to put Torah, I should say, on the scale between work and play. And what I want to argue is that even as Torah today, I think for many people, is kind of more in the play camp uh, in terms of how they, how they relate to it, um, in the ancient world, as the rabbis are kind of getting the rabbinic project underway, as they're, you know, as the mission is being compiled, as the Babylonian Talmud is being compiled, there is more of a sense that Torah is a kind of work, and not just any work. It is specifically a kind of artisanal work, by which I mean it is similar to being a blacksmith. It is similar to being a carpenter. It is similar to being a shoemaker. It is that kind of work. And that notion of work, if you start looking for it, is both pervasive throughout rabbinic literature. You can find it everywhere. And also, once you start thinking in those terms, you start thinking about Torah as a kind of work, as a kind of artisanal work, 
it starts to make a lot of things within Torah, within the culture of Torah, within the relationship between rabbis and students, much, much clearer. Now, why would you think the Torah is work in the first place? Well, so imagine, you know, at least in the times of the Mishnah, where the Mishnah being developed in a kind of Roman milieu or in a Roman culture, in Rome, everything is work, or at least everything is structured like work. That is to say, everything is structured within a guild system. Guilds could be different sizes. You could have a guild that's 10 people. You could have a guild that's 2,000 people. But the notion of like guilds as being a kind of a social structure that organizes life extended in Rome and extended in the Roman Empire beyond just actual guilds. So you could have magical societies that are constructed as guilds. You can have um, non-Jewish religious societies that are constructed as guilds. And you can imagine that um, the project of Torah um, kind of sits in the same kind of guild space. Now, what does that mean in practice? What does it mean for the way that, that the rabbis think about their own work? Well, the first piece of this is to imagine what does it actually mean to be a rabbi in the first place? So here, let's think about what it is to be a rabbi, what it is to be a rabbi. We know that a rabbi is important. The Mishnah, Rabbi Yeshua ben Omer, Rav. Make for yourself a rav. And I've intentionally not translated the word here just to make things uh, interesting. It is some something that is important in your life. It is different from a friend. Um, it seems, based on what Rav Yishuv ben Prachia says here, that a rav is not necessarily a Jewish figure. It's not necessarily a Torah figure. It is somebody in your life who maybe has some kind of leadership or mentorship responsibilities towards you. And the truth of the matter is, as you dig into rabbinic literature, you find that this notion of Rav as being useful, not just to talk about, um, you know, literal, you know, the rabbis that we know and love, but any other kind of rabbi, any other kind of um, master, any other kind of mentor shows up frequently. One of the most important examples is in the middle of this very famous, um, um, you know, relationship between Reish Lakish and Rav Yochanan. Reish Lakish, I'm not going to go through the whole story right now, but Reish Lakish and Rav Yochanan, you know, Rav Yochanan woos Reish Lakish from a life of, you know, crime or a life of banditry into a more rabbinic life. One day they're arguing, they're arguing about the kind of seemingly arcane point of uh, whether uh, weapons of war, at what point they are finished and can receive ritual impurity. And in the middle of that conversation, this is in source number two, there is this question, when are iron weapons considered complete? Rabbi Yochanan said, oh, after they're fired in a furnace. Rish Lakish said, no, it's from when it's quenched in a fire. Rabbi Yochanan said to him, a bandit knows his banditry, meaning like, I'm going to trust your opinion because, you know, you come from that world. And so you probably know more than me, but it's also kind of an insult. Now, Rish Lakish says to him, what good have you done to me? There they called me Rav, and here they called me Rav, right? Hatam Rabbi Karuli, Hacha Rabbi Karuli. Wherever I am, I am a Rav, right? I was a Rav before. I wasn't, I didn't, didn't require being in the Beit Midrash to be a Rav. That is to say, I am a, a master. I was a master in that space. You also get this sense in Tosefta Horayot, where there's a discussion about the order in which people are supposed to be redeemed, right? If you have to redeem yourself, if you have to redeem your parent, you have to redeem a Rav. What is the order in which you redeem yourself? And so the order is given. And then in the last few words of that, um, of, of that ruling, there is a clarification. Uh, look at the forwards from the end of that first line in source number three. Ezehu Rabo, who is his teacher? Rabo Shilimdo Torah. Someone who teach a rabbo, a rabbo who teaches you Torah, Lo Shilimdo Omanut, not one who teaches you some kind of craft. Um, this is to say, just to kind of establish that the word Rav is being used in, in both these senses. And it's kind of hard to imagine that now because we're so ingrained with this notion of Rav as being uh, as being tied up in a notion of, of Jewish knowledge. 
But the truth of the matter is you have this very different sense of what it means to be a Rav. And our notion of, of Rav is a direct descendant of that generalized notion of a teacher, of a, of a master. Now think about what that means, what are the implications of that for the rabbi-student relationship? If we were imagining this as kind of a derivative of a guild relationship, right? First of all, it means it's super hierarchical, right? It's, non, it's, it's, it's clear that there's someone who's in training, there's someone who is the master. Beyond that, you can understand why in this context, oral tradition, Torah Shaval Pet is so important because just as a blacksmith mostly teaches his knowledge, you know, transmits knowledge by word of mouth, the same thing is true for a carpenter, for a shoemaker, for a tailor, the same is true for Torah. That is how most people transmit their craft knowledge. They transmit it not through books, once in a while through books, but mostly not through books. It's mostly through word of mouth. It is a slow process of observing. You have all kinds of stories about students of the rabbis trying to observe as much as possible, having questions about like, what is the limits of what I can observe of my teacher? But a sense this is not just something you read a guidebook and you get through it. It's a practice you learn over time. And if you don't go through that process, if you try to learn it some other way, you actually haven't probably haven't learned it properly. So, oh, it finally makes sense, right? This notion of like Torah Shvalpeh is intimately tied up in this notion of what it means to be learning a craft, what it means to be learning a trade of some kind. Um, it also makes sense now why you have to spend so many years understanding it. Now, one piece which this does not help you understand, at least here, is whether this knowledge should be public or secret. There is, very famously, an entire branch of Jewish knowledge, which is very often orally transmitted, and it's also often kept secret, and that is Jewish mysticism. That is Kabbalah. Now, you might think, like, well, how does that fit into this? I want to make your argument, just I'm going to gesture at this because I mostly want to stay with the rabbis in late antiquity, but I want to make the argument that part of what's going on there, part of what is going on in the kind of culture of secrecy that develops around, um, uh, around the transmission of Kabbalah, is actually a, a continuation of this guild metaphor, this guild idea. Because one of the things that happens in the medieval period is that um, guilds become far more secretive. It becomes a kind of default mode to have all guilds become secretive. So you can imagine in that, in that context, as guilds are becoming secretive, you start to have this Jewish form of knowledge that becomes secretive as well. Great, end of gesture. Now let's go back to the main sources. So first, we've already established what does it mean to be a Rav? A Rav is a kind of artisanal master. But once we've established that, this notion of a Rav as an artisanal master, well, what does that mean about the work that happens between the Rav and the student? What has actually, what it, you know, if you know, a blacksmith uh, works iron and a carpenter works wood, well, what does a Torah smith work? What does it actually mean to be, um, to be a rabbi if you are doing some kind of artisanal work? And here I want to suggest that there's actually two different ways in which the rabbis understand this. I want to start with a kind of strange place. There's a pasuk in Yirmiyahu. Halo um Hashem Are not my words like fire, says Hashem, and like a hammer that breaks rocks. Right? God is powerful. I think that's, I think that's basically the message of this pasuk. God is powerful. Um, but this pasuk, and particularly the last three words of this pasuk, that God is like a hammer that breaks rocks, shows up in a number of very closely related passages throughout the Talmud that are all about how the Torah has many interpretations. So just to give you an example, there's, there's, there's two of these that are similar. You'll see that they're similar. Tani Debe Rabbi Ishmael, this is in source number five. Kavatishya Fatzeit Sela, 
מה פטיש זה נחלק לכמה ניצוצות? אף כל דיבור ודיבור שיצא מפי הקדוש ברוך הוא נחלק לשבעים לשנות. Just like, and I'm going to be careful with the, with the kind of the, the, the grammar here, right? Just like a ha this hammer is divided into many nitzotzot, into many fragments, so too everything that comes out of God's mouth is divided into 70 languages. Or in the version that you have in number six, something like just as this hammer divides into many fragments, so too one verse can give forth many explanations. But the idea behind both of them is kind of similar, right? You have the sense that there is this thing called Torah. The Torah is not just a monolith. The Torah has all these interpretations, right? There's, there's different languages. There's different meanings to Pesukim. Great. This is wonderful. You know, whatever you have visual imagery to go along with understanding the Torah, it's like, it's amazing. You can't get better than that. Um, but there's kind of a subtle problem. There's a, a, a couple of subtle problems with this metaphor. The first thing is that it seems to be saying here that a hammer is striking something, but what is exactly the hammer is striking in this, in this metaphor, this blacksmithing metaphor about some kind of metalworking? Um, but first of all, why is it that when we talk about the hammer being divided, we don't use a, an active verb. It's not the hammer that is dividing something. It is the hammer that is being divided. It is nechlak, it is mitchalek. It is always either passive or reflexive in every single version of this that we have. The second thing, the more complicated thing, is what are nitzotzot? The second question might seem like it's easier to answer. Nitzotzot is almost always translated as sparks throughout rabbinic literature. I want to make the argument that that's wrong. Or if it's not wrong, it's at least imprecise. The reason it's imprecise is that it seems like the sparks that we know, um, like if you imagine in your head like what a spark is, does not correspond to what the rabbis are talking about. Well, when you imagine a spark, you're imagining like, you know, like a shower of sparks, right? These tiny, tiny um, uh, slivers of metal that are so small that they just kind of evaporate, they glow for an instant and they're gone, right? And critically, the sparks that we normally imagine have no substance to them. They have no, you know, because they're gone before you know it. You can never, you see them glowing for a second and then there's nothing left there. That doesn't seem to be the way that the rabbis use the word nitzotzot in rabbinic literature, either when they're talking about sparks, like sparks that come out of metal, or sparks in other kinds of contexts. In fact, when the rabbis use the word sparks in rabbinic literature, consistently they're talking about a, a small piece that comes out of a big piece, and that small piece sticks around. Now, we have to think for a second, like, well, what does that, what does that mean in the context of metalworking? What does it mean to have Nitsotsopi, a small piece that comes out of a big piece, and the small piece sticks around? Well, um, verse number seven suggests it's something that's pretty substantial. It's not just like a tiny spark. It's something that can actually hurt you. So verse number seven um, in, from Baba Kama um, says, we don't really learn in a brighta. If someone enters a blacksmith workshop and sparks fly off and strike him in the face and he dies, the blacksmith is not liable, even if he enters with permission. Now, the possibility that a spark flying off and killing somebody seems pretty rare. It seems more likely there is something else going on here. And the question of what that something else is, um, is actually pretty easy to answer. And it is something called hammer scale. I want to show you a picture of what this looks like, and, and you'll be like, oh, okay, now I get that. Um, here's what hammer scale looks like. When you are working a forge, specifically for iron, this is not true for other metals, when you're working an iron forge, um, and you get the iron to a certain temperature. One thing that you discover is that when the iron is very, very hot, you take it out of the forge, the outer surface instantly starts oxidizing, starts turning dark. When you hit it with a hammer, that outer surface falls away um, onto the surface that you're working on. 
And then you can kind of continue working the piece. Um, but you have these little flakes of metal that stick around. Um, this is true for basically any kind of blacksmithing work. And we just want to show you one small example in the first 30 seconds of this video. You don't need the sound for this. Shutting it off. It takes it out of the forge, hitting it with a hammer. You see these little flakes that are coming off. There are some sparks as well. But the thing that you see mostly is these little flakes of metal. You'll notice as well, as the metal cools, there are fewer and fewer flakes. But there is like a, there's a decent amount of flakes, right? This is like not a, an insignificant amount of metal. And that sticks around. Um, and this metal, stop sharing for a second, um, is everywhere. Meaning like if you are an archaeologist and you want to understand the metalworking culture of a given site, the first thing you're going to look at is hammer scale because it's everywhere. It tells you a lot about metalworking capabilities of a given culture. Um, the rabbinic language, and not just rabbinic language, I'd say Latin as well, the language around um, these byproducts um, in the metalworking process is not very precise. So probably what is going on is this word nitsotsot is being used to talk about a kind of a bundle of different things, a bundle of different byproducts of the metalworking process. But in this particular example, in this particular instance, it seems like what is what is most likely being described here is hammer scale. That is these flakes of metal that stick around long after um, long after the process of of working the the material that you worked is 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 done. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that when we're talking about hammer scale and not talking about sparks. I'm sorry for taking you down this, this rabbit hole, but why does it matter in the end of the day? Um, if you think about going back to the original, um, the original metaphor, right, in, in sources number five and source number six, just like a hammer is divided into many hammer scale or many fragments, so to everything that left the mouth of God was divided into 70 languages. That is to say, it is not a hammer working something else. It is a hammer being worked. A hammer is being worked, a ham and in the process of being worked, in the process of the hammer being forged, because that's what you do as a blacksmith, you forge hammers, you're not just using hammers, you're also forging hammers. In the process of a hammer being forged, there are these fragments that come off of it. And those fragments, because they're coming off of something important, those things matter too. So kind of to complete the metaphor here, what is Torah here? Torah is a raw substance. Torah is a raw substance that is being worked by rabbis. It is being worked by rabbis and in the process of working it in the pro in that kind of like violent, very, you know, um, energetic, very strenuous process of working the Torah, you create these fragments. And those fragments are interpretations. And so the rabbis understand themselves to kind of fill out this metaphor as being the thing, as being the artisans whose job it is to work Torah. So just as a blacksmith works iron, just as a carpenter works with wood, a rabbi works Torah. And the job of a rabbi is to be proficient at working the Torah and shaping the Torah's raw substance into this huge variety of different objects. Now, just to kind of like stay with the sparks thing for a second, obviously there's other contexts in which we talk about sparks, again, to go back to Kabbalah, right? In Kabbalistic context, people will talk about gathering up sparks, right? Like this metaphor works there as well. The notion of gathering up sparks as being a kind of redemptive process certainly makes, makes a lot more sense we're talking about instead of sparks hammer scale that is you're talking about kind of these fragments that have fallen off through some violent activity uh which is often how you know in kabbalah it's described the the kind of the creation of the world the beginning of the world is such a kind of violent activity so we have one idea here the rabbis understand themselves as artisans 
And the thing that they're artisans of is the Torah. They use the Torah as a raw substance. But something interesting happens. Now, the rabbis don't just think about the Torah as a substance that is being worked. They also think about the Torah as a tool. And to explain how the rabbis think about Torah as a tool, I want to show you two other texts that seem to be doing this. Now, there's something, there's something just very lovely about these two texts. I, I'm very fond of them. Um, so one is Mishnah Avot. This is source number nine. Now, I, I don't care about most of this source. I just care about the last few words, right? This is a source that is describing this curious category of objects, which um, the Torah doesn't describe God creating. Um, but God creates, according to the rabbis, like right, 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 right at the end of the last day of creation, uh, just before Shabbat starts. These are kind of exceptional things. They're things like the, the Shamir, this kind of magical creature that is able to cut through metal and other substances, um, or uh, Bilam's donkey, uh, who is able to talk, or the rainbow that appears before Noah, these kind of miraculous, you know, only one of a, one of a kind of um, uh, objects. Now, into this list of objects, the rabbis insert one unusual thing, tongs. So that's at the very end, in the last line of this, also some in source number nine, also tongs which are made from other tongs. Now, may, may ask yourself, like, who cares? <laughs> like, you know, okay, wh why are tongs important? Um, and one interesting thing to note about tongs, the thing that makes tongs special is that tongs are the first tool, literally, by which I mean this. If you're a carpenter, a carpenter, most of a carpenter's tools are metal. So if a carpenter wants to become a carpenter, they have to go to someone else to get their tools. Usually they go to a blacksmith. A blacksmith's tools are made of metal. When a blacksmith wants to make tools, usually what they do is just make their own tools, right? If, you, if you're a blacksmith and you need a new hammer, you just make your own hammer and then use your hammer to make your other stuff. So what is unique about the blacksmith among all the professions is that the, at least in the ancient world, is that the blacksmith is able to make the blacksmith's own tools. No one else can do that. And the first tool that a blacksmith needs to make because fire is very hot and it's not fun to put your hand in the fire to, to, to work objects is tongs. The first thing that a blacksmith needs to make is tongs. So you can imagine, you know, the blacksmith is the one that makes the tools and the first tool that the blacksmith needs to make is the tongs. So the tongs is not just any tool, it is the first tool. It is the tool that is necessary, at least in the rabbinic imagination, to make every other craft possible. Without tongs, there's nothing else. And so the rabbis have this kind of funny question that's implied here, which is, okay, well, you know, if ordinarily, if a blacksmith needs tongs, they can just go to some other blacksmith and get tongs from them. But what, what about the first blacksmith? How did the first blacksmith get tongs? And I should say, this is not just my question. If you right now Google first tongs, blacksmithing, Reddit, you will find a number of forums where people ask literally this question, which is like, I wanna be a blacksmith. How do I make my first set of tongs? Because it is still a question for, and like, it's still a question like, oh, like I, I recognize I'm entering a craft that allows me to make my own stuff. How do I make that first set of tongs? So it's everywhere, this idea. And so the rabbis solve this problem really elegantly. They say, oh, you know how, you know how we have tongs? God made the first set of tongs for us which isn't just a kind of um, solution to a logic puzzle. It also does something else that is important. It says that God is the enabler of all human craft work. Not that God makes all crafts, but that no craft would be possible without God, okay? 
That is the idea be here behind this tongs sentiment, that God enables practice. I want you to hold on to that because we're about to see the same exact um, claim made in a very different context in the next source. Source number 10 is Tosefta and Erevin. It is describing um, how there are certain areas of Jewish law which seem to be kind of disconnected from everything. They seem to have like no connection to any, any pasuk in the Torah. They seem to be fabricated in the rabbinic imagination. And the rabbis, to their credit, acknowledge this. They say, for example, in source number 10, the laws of Shabbat festivals and the rehabilitation of temple property are like mountains hanging by a hair. Little scripture, many laws, which are not supported by anything. They understand that they have built these huge edifices of law on very, very, very few uh, verses in the Torah. Now, to explain this, there's no, there's no like linking tissue here. It just goes right to this line. Based on this, Rabbi Yeshua said, tongs are made from tongs. The first pair, what was their origin? They were created by God. Now you might think like, what, what's, the, what's the connection here? Like why are we talking about tongs after we're talking about how the rabbis have these huge edifices of Torah made in the air? And I think if we understand this idea behind God making the first tongs in source number nine, that it is God enabling human craftsmanship, craftsmanship, that what Rabbi Yeshua is telegraphing here starts to make a lot of sense. Rabbi Yeshua is saying, oh, just as it is, just as it was that God made the first set of tongs that allowed for all kinds of crafts to take place after that, so too God made the things that allow the rabbis to do their own work. And what is the thing that God makes? God makes the Torah. The Torah is, so to speak, the first set of tongs. It is the first tool. The Torah is the tool that allows for other tools. And that, I think, is a really powerful image, right? Imagines the rabbis not just as being artisans, but specifically as being blacksmiths. They are, they are both working the Torah, as we saw in the first metaphor involving sparks. They're, they're both understanding the Torah as a kind of um, raw substance that they work. But they also understand the Torah as a tool that enables the creation of other tools. Um, and imagining the Torah as a, as a kind of tool, uh, as a tool that one can gain proficiency in, is a kind of incredibly powerful uh, way of thinking about the Torah, at least I think. Um, so I, I, I love this, uh, this image in particular. Um, I think it's very powerful. I think there's a question in the chat. I just wanna make sure I don't miss it. Um, yes, I, I didn't even actually think about that. Thank you, John. Right, Rabbi Yeshua is a blacksmith. That's actually gonna show up in a second, but yes, that is a piece of this as well, right? Um, and, and the truth of the matter is, it's, 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 it's not a small thing that the rabbis are referring back to the, the trades that they personally know well, right? Um, this shows up frequently, like you'll, you'll have, uh, you'll have explanations in the in, um, in rabbinic literature where like a, a series of rabbis provide an explanation for a verse using different um, artisanal metaphors based on the things that they are particular experts in. So it's very powerful to have an idea kind of brought to the, your own craft. Um, so yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. Okay, so we've talked about the Rav student relationship as the kind of social relationship, as a kind of craft relationship that, that helps us understand what oral Torah is. We've also talked about Torah itself as being both a kind of raw substance and as a kind of tool in this same artistic guild metaphor. Now, if we run with this metaphor, we think about, um, we think about the, the, the Beit Midrash as a kind of workshop. Well, what kind of workshop is it? What does it mean to be good at this? What does it mean to be bad at this? What are the things that the rabbis are worried about? Um, and here there's some really lovely, uh, um, ideas that kind of open up based on this guild metaphor. 
One is that in the same way that being a great blacksmith or being a great woodworker is a combination of knowing what your client wants and also just being able to do whatever you want with the material because you're just really good at it. There's the same kind of tension in rabbinic literature. Is the best way to be, is, is it good to be, it, I'm sorry, let me start that again. Um, is the best way of being Torah smith to simply be able to move Torah in any which way you please, um, to be very good at the Torah as a tool, or is the best way to use Torah to actually use it in the way that it is that you need to use it as a kind of utilitarian purpose to get to some halachic, to, to get to some legal end. Um, this helps us explain what's going on in uh, Eruvian 13b. Rabbi Ahab said, it's revealed and known before the one who spoke in the world came into being that Rabbi Meir had no equal in his generation. Rabbi Meir is the best rabbi. So why didn't the sages establish halacha in accordance with his opinion if he's so great? Because his colleagues were unable to abide by his conclusions. He didn't come to the answers they thought were right. He would call the pure impure and give an explanation. He would call the pure impure pure and give an explanation. Rabbi Bawin said, said that Rabbi Yochanan said, Rabbi Meir had a disciple named Sumachus would give 48 reasons to support a ruling of impurity and 48 reasons to support a ruling of purity. Now, this, this is such a, a great idea, right? Like thinking about this in a, in a craft mindset, right? Like what does it mean to be good at being a blacksmith? It's not just that you know one way of making something, it's that you know a dozen ways of making something. You know how to adapt to the circumstances. You can think through like all the different uh, contingencies. Like that is what it means to be really proficient. It's that you know how to deal with um, all the different possibilities, all the different cases. That is what it means for Rabbi Meir to be great at his craft. It was taught in a that there was a distinguished student at Yavna who had 150 arguments in support of purifying vermin, um, which are obviously not pure, but nonetheless found 150 arguments to make him pure because he was that good. So the rabbis both admire this and also recognize that that's not what they are doing because again, they are not playing, they are working. Um, and this comes across even more strongly in um, source number 12, a passage which um, is a, a kind of tefillah about entering and exiting the Midrash, a tefillah which, you know, people still, some people still continue to say today. And the, the exiting part, at least, um, is part of the, um, the, the standard text for a seum when you finish a, a, um, a, part of, a part of Torah. The sages taught, upon entering the Midrash, what does one say? May be your will, Lord my God, that no mishap transpires because of me that I not fail in any manner of halacha, and that my colleagues will rejoice in me, that I will neither declare pure that which is impure, nor pure that which is pure, and that my colleagues will not fail in any manner of halacha, and that I will rejoice in them. I read this, and like I, this sounds to me like I pray that I don't violate any OSHA regulations. Like I pray that I have no workplace mis mishaps. That is what this sounds like to me. Like you can imagine there's like a big sign on the wall. It's like, you know, it has been zero days since we have called something pure impure or something like that. Um, that is the sense here, right? Like you're you're going to make me drush with a kind of trepidation that something actually something could go wrong. Um, and if you don't work well with your colleagues, then then there is an actual possibility of creating damage. Uh, that is the mindset that the rabbis have going to the Midrash. And then what do you say when you exit? I give thanks before you. This is in the last paragraph on, on page 12 or the second paragraph on page 13. I give thanks before you, Lord my God, that you have placed my lot among those who sit in the study hall. You have not given me my portion among those who sit oddly on street corners. And then I rise early and they rise early. I rise early to, to pursue matters of Torah. They rise early to pursue frivolous matters. I toil and they toil. I toil and receive a reward. 
they toil and do not receive reward. And notice there, right? Like everyone's toiling. Everyone is doing work. It's just a question of the kind of work that you do. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. But in both places, it is a kind of job. It's a kind of job that matters. It's a job that has crucial importance, but it is still nonetheless a job. So in different ways, we can understand the rabbinic project as a kind of trade craft project, as a kind of artisanal project, a project in which one works Torah under the mentorship of a Rav in a way that allows you over the period of many years to learn the skills necessary to, um, to manipulate Torah in various ways to create something new, um, to use Torah both as a tool and as a raw substance. And there's something very powerful about that. The question then is, what are the limits of this idea? Where does thinking about Torah as a kind of craft, where does it not allow you to go? So this model does have some problems. One problem is that it privileges people who actually do work and it ignores the possibility of being destitute. Um, this comes across in a statement which you may have read a million times or maybe not, um, which you've never, probably never thought twice about, but actually contains within it a, a really clear um, idea about where the rabbis are socioeconomically. So it's number 13, Ben Zoma Omer, Ezehu Asher, Ben Zoma says, who is rich? Hasameach Bechelko, one who is happy with his lot. Um, not everyone would say that. The people who say, well, I'm happy with what I have are people who have enough. People who don't have a place to sleep, people who don't have enough to eat are generally not the kinds of people who say, I'm happy with what I have. And there is scholarly speculation based on this that actually um, the rabbis in the Mishnah at least are basically not at all destitute. You have rabbis who are middle-class, you have rabbis who are upper-class, you don't really have rabbis who are super poor. Um, and even when the rabbis are talking about um, poverty, even when they're talking about the need to give tzedakah, even when they're talking about, you know, all kinds of um, gifts that people have responsibility for, they're almost always speaking from the perspective of someone who has and not from the perspective of someone who does not have. So that is kind of baked into this. So one limit of this metaphor is that it privileges working life. It privileges the, the lives of people who are able to work um, and have that kind of relationship with, um, with their days. Um, not everyone has that. The other piece of it, and I think this is connected to the first piece, is it can create, can create a kind of disconnect um, between you know, uh, uh, people who can spend their entire day working and people who are balancing work and Torah study. And you see this in source number 14. This is a piece of the story uh, um, of the conflict between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua, where Rabbi Gamliel ends up kind of getting at least temporarily kicked out of the Bay Midrash for being rude to Rabbi Yeshua. Um, and they announce, uh, you know, a new temporary leader of the Bay Midrash. But in, in the um, in the kind of the aftermath of that story, Rabbi Gamliel is attempting to kind of make it up to Rabbi Yeshua, his opponent. Um, he goes to Rabbi Yeshua's house as a kind of sign of humility. And, and when he gets to his house, it says he saw, Rabbi Gamliel saw that its walls were black. Rabbi Gamliel is living in this filthy house. I'm sorry, Rabbi Yeshua is living in this filthy house. He said to him, from your walls, it is clear that you are a blacksmith which is like already, you know, imagine you're working with someone for years and years and years, and you literally don't know what to do for a living. Um, so that itself tells you something about Rabbi Gamaliel. Rabbi Yeshua said to him, woe to the generation that has you as a leader, for you are unaware of the troubles of Torah scholars with how they make a living with how they eat. So again, 
privilegeless metaphor has the possibility of kind of discounting, I think, both other kinds of work that are not literally Torah, um, and also people who don't who don't live in life. Uh, I'm just going to go through the chat because I see a few things are piling up. Uh, John, why are the people toiling outside the Bay Midrash called idle on the street corners? Yeah, I, so I think there, it's not, I think there's more things going on. It's not just about one kind of work versus another kind of work. It's also about a sense of kind of like actually wasting time, which is probably a good topic for a different conversation. Um, does Rabbi Akiva talk much about poverty or life as a worker? He didn't start his rabbinic career as a middle or elite. Or a, as, yeah. All right. I think it's a good story. And the truth of the matter is um, uh, the socioeconomic positions of the rabbis change over time. So I think it's a good question. I don't have a great answer for you now by Rabbi Akiva specifically. Um, so this is the first obstacle. The first obstacle is overusing the work metaphor to the detriment of people who are, have a different relationship with work for whatever reason, for the many reasons people have different relationship with work. That's one piece of it. Um, the second piece of it is that Torah is, well, I'll say it like this. Um, it's useful to think about a Torah as being a kind of work in late antiquity it masks a little bit the fact that today, this there is still the same dynamic of Torah being work versus Torah being play, but I think we don't always recognize how that plays out. Um, there is a kind of world of difference in some ways between people who study being, who like, you know, study for the joy of it, um, and people who study Torah because they're trying to lead their communities. And for the people who are studying Torah because they're trying to lead their communities, Torah really can feel like a kind of work. Um, and you actually know this because you see rabbis complaining about this. Here, I just want to bring you like one sort of example of a rabbi who very clearly seems to be thinking about Torah as a kind of work and actually hard work. This is a tshuva um, from Raphael Aaron ben Shimon, uh, who's a rabbi in Cairo. Um, in the, he's writing in the late 19th century here. He is writing um, to answer the question, are matches allowed on Shabbat, which is new at the time. He also kind of parenthetically talks about electricity, but it's mostly answering the question, are matches allowed on Shabbat? And actually, I'm not so interested in his answer, the question. I'm interested in the preamble he gives to this answer, which is like this kind of like whiny, um, <laughs> like concern about like the kinds of questions that he foresees are going to get asked of him and other rabbis in the future because of technological progress. He says, friend, many times I've told you in confidence how difficult it is for a teacher in these times to answer questions like this because of new inventions of this variety. That is to say, people keep asking me these questions, these hard questions about like whether things are allowed on Shabbat um, because of all these new things. And it's, it's actually hard to answer these questions. He says, each day there glimmer new inventions, which our father and elders never imagined. It became, becomes difficult for the teacher to respond to his questioners something about the new inventions, namely whether it's permitted to use them on Shabbat and Yom Tov. And it's difficult to find examples in our Holy Talmud, which are wellsprings of life with regards to instructing whether to permit or forbid. Only through great effort and a clear and quieted mind and time free from distracting responsibilities is it possible to compare one matter to another. Um, in the matter of Sahim, he makes a reference to a, to a, 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 a Talmudic passage where someone kind of does, makes a kind of um, connection between two verses which you wouldn't normally think to connect. Using the word searching from searching and then searching in lamps, basically making a hekesh between those uh, two verses uh, as a way of solving a halachic problem. But he's saying like, this is this is hard, right? It's hard actually to be confronted by these kinds of problems because it involves this deep, deep searching within the Talmud, within rabbinic uh, text to find 
texts that are relevant to answering this super modern question of whether you can use matches on Shabbat. That's hard to do. Um, and so he is imagining Torah here as, as very much a kind of work. So I want to say, first of all, that this continues to live on today. And it's worth recognizing the times in which this mode of Torah study exists, because it's, you know, it is, it maybe is, maybe feels liminal, maybe it feels marginal, but it is still there. But at the same time, Torah can also very much be a form of play. And I think one thing that's that's hard to do is kind of bridge that gap between our notion of Torah as mostly a kind of play and the rabbinic notion of Torah as work. Um, there is a book that came out literally a month ago um, by um, scholar Sithi Nguyen. Um, he's writing about the concept of games. What is a game? Um, why are games important? Why do people make games? Uh, and what is what makes a game different from other forms of artwork? Um, and Nguyen's argument is this. He says that games are special because the point of a game as opposed to the point of a painting, uh, the point of a photograph, the point of a piece of music, is that a game gives you choices. A game is designed to give you specific choices and in so doing, create experiences that can only come about by a person who is faced with choices and, you know, and obstacles and overcomes them or doesn't. There's that sense of achievement or the sense of struggle or the kind of strategy questions that only come about in games. And there's something special about the fact that games allow you to make those choices disconnected from any actual concerns about the world, right? You know that the stakes of a game are only temporary, right? Like I care about having the most money in Monopoly right now, but like it doesn't matter beyond the next hour or so or however long it takes you to play Monopoly. I personally refuse to play Monopoly with my children. I'll play other things, but I refuse to play Monopoly. Um, Nguyen puts it like this. He says, games can be an existential bomb for our practical unease of the world. In games, the problems can be right-sized for our, our capacities. Our in-game selves can be right-sized for the problems. And the arrangement of self and world can make solving the problems pleasurable, satisfying, interesting, and beautiful. Even with our opponents, there is a harmony. In a good game, our opponents' attempts to harm us may, in the right circumstances, actually be channeled so as to create experiences we value. In ordinary life, social attacks and financial attacks are usually painful and unpleasant. They can be survived, gotten over, but rarely can they be enjoyed. The games are often designed such that your attacks on me are channeled into interesting obstacles for me to overcome. There's something in that, like, as soon as I read this, I was like, oh, right, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But this is Torah. Like, this is the way that I experienced Torah. This is like my experience of being in a Beit Midrash, learning with a Chavruta, of, you know, arguing often very bitterly, you know, often like, you know, angrily with a Chavruta about like something which like, you know, in terms of like the larger scope of my life, maybe it doesn't matter at all. But there's, in that moment, it matters a great deal. Um, and there's something that only Torah can give me access to those experiences. Only the practice of learning Torah can actually make me feel that way. And actually like learning Torah with other people um, specifically um, can give me those experiences. Um, and that's really powerful. And I think we are often kind of inclined to see this game idea uh, when we read rabbinic literature because we see like, oh, like they're doing kind of what we're doing. I wanna actually encourage us to imagine that they, that may sometimes be what's going on. There's certainly, you know, I imagine the rabbis don't hate what they do um, in, in late antiquity, um, but it's not the only thing that's going on. There's also this well-developed notion of work that is, that is going on here. And thinking about Torah study as this amazing 
thing that develops as part of this work culture, as part of this guild culture. And then over time also develops a life as a kind of play, as a kind of like wonderful sacred play. Um, I find it very powerful. So um, I don't have much more for you. I want to leave you with that idea that Torah can kind of live in those two spaces, the space of work and the space of play, um, but that the space of work in particular can help you understand what it is what the rabbis are doing. They talk about orality, they talk about oral Torah, and they talk about what it means to work the Torah, what they think it means to be good at working the Torah. That all these things are there and all these things are possible. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And then I'm not sure if any questions came in beyond the ones that I've seen, but let's take a few minutes for questions if anybody has any. And to those who are watching on Facebook Live, you know, I see you, I see the few of you, please feel free to, um, I guess, ask up in chat. So John, you're saying, is there a continuing progression between the rabbinic world of expert artisans and guilds and the modern industrial one of mass kolos? I think it's a good question. I don't have a I don't have a great answer for it. Um, I my inclination is that there's actually and I don't mean this in a derogatory way that there is something um, there's something playful about about the experience of being in a kolal. Now, obviously, like what it means to be in a kolal um, changes depending on you know where one is in life. Like there's 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 it's not a pure game. Like other things are often hanging in the balance. Um, but I think there is also a, a playfulness there that's important to recognize. Um, I don't think it is, I don't think it's exactly the kind of guild that the rabbis are imagining. Um, I think it's a different kind of project. Wondering, okay, so Mark is saying, wondering why seeing Torah as work labor wouldn't connect them to other workers rather than disconnect them. Yeah, well, I think, I think there's a few answers to that. Um, you know, so it does connect them in the sense that some of these rabbis literally are workers, right? Like some, there are, some rabbis can afford to spend their entire time working. Some rabbis are also workers. Um, I don't think that you need to, with, with the exception of that one passage about, you know, we work and they work, we toil and they toil. I think generally, if there isn't the sense of like our work is the only work that matters. Um, instead, I think there is a kind of cultivated respect for uh, for that model of guild work, of trade work, that uh, is reflected in the way that the rabbis themselves operate. So I, I read it as a kind of like uh, uh, implicit um, um, endorsement of that kind of relationship to one's work. Uh, I don't see it as, as mostly about disdain. I actually think it, uh, the rabbis are, are comfortable with it and, and are, are happy to embrace it. Carol, I think you have a question, but I can't hear you. Yeah, it might be an exception. Yeah. Um, Carol, is there something up with your microphone? Like, I can see you talking, you're not muted, but no one can hear you. Um, feel free to ask in chat. Yeah. I don't want to miss out on what you. Yeah, so Justin, you're saying there are interesting parallels between your talking about Torah existing between play and work, and the recent critiques around crypto trends of turning play into work. Uh, I don't know that study. I would love to take a look at it. Um, yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, and maybe this is something which, which we can talk about later, um, you know, today that the kind of work and play get, are so conflated, right? Because I think especially there is uh, an expectation or a desire among people my age 
people younger than me, um, to have work that is also kind of enjoyable, that feels like play, right? Like that's, that's the goal, that's the ideal. Um, and, uh, you know, or like the idea that, you know, you know, have a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? So there is that sense as well. Um, I think there might be something to be said actually about dividing those two things uh, and about the kind of toxic results that can happen if you have too much connection between work and play. Um, but I think it's probably something to discuss another time. Michelle, you're asking, how does this model of Torah as work jive with Shabbat? Not necessarily Malacha type work, obviously, but the spirit of Shabbat. Michelle, you have to come to the next class. <laughs> that's the discussion, of the, that's the topic for the next class. Um, yeah, but we'll, we'll very much talk about that next time. Kel, we still can't hear you. If you, if you, um, uh, if you can't make the mic work and you email me, I, email I know. Does, it, does it work now? Yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I hit the right button. Um, I, I keep thinking about how people who who's, who's make their life studying Torah think about this as, as work, but as the only important work or the most important work or the work that you should do if you possibly can and everything else is sort of on a lower level and that other people should be supporting us for the, the for for doing the the most important work in the universe as they would see it and how does your concept of, of, of torah as work fit into that um mindset yeah so i think look already in rabbinic literature there's a variety of, of positions about what the right relationship is supposed to be between um torah work and other kinds of work i kind of didn't want to get into that in this class in part to say because i i think an assumption that happens in those contexts is to say like, well, there's work. And then there's this other thing called Torah, which is not work. It's like a kind of exit from work. And part of what I'm arguing is that it's actually not an exit. It is for the rabbis, a, a different, it's a species of work. Maybe it's a species of work, which is privileged, which has a special status among other kinds of work, but it is of the same type um, as those other, as those other activities. Um, so it's, it's, worth understanding it in that sense. And I think it's, it's actually because of the way that the rabbis compare Torah and other kinds of work that makes us think like, oh, maybe Torah is something else, but actually it's not. It is It is also a kind of formal, it's a, also a form of work, um, except one that the rabbis are they doing? Are, are Torah scholars doing a benefit to the entire community such that the entire community should be um, paying them to do this and and and, and getting the resources from either the communal funds or, or or payments or something like that. Yeah, I think that's also <laughs> a, a big and open question about like about appropriate payment for um for this. So yeah, that matters that matters a great deal. Um, it's not <laughs> it's not what I have to talk about today, but but I think it's an important question. So sorry for the weak answer. <laughs> uh I, I think I'm going to ask something similar to Carol, but like, I think it's a little different. Like, I think there's a difference between like, like if it's a type of work, right? Does it deserve monetary compensation? And like by monetary compensation, I'm not saying that like support the rabbis who just learn in Kololim, right? So like people who, who like work as cashiers generally don't make them enough money to support themselves, right? Like, did the rabbis believe, like, ideally, uh, um, learning Torah 
deserved monetary compensation just like a blacksmith, just like a, a, a farmer? Or is that outside the scope of what you're talking about? That's not the scope of it, although I feel like because of the questions, maybe I should add, I mean, we should find a place for it in another three in, there, in the rest of the three talks. Yeah, no, it's complicated. It's complicated in part because I think there's a kind of principled stance. Um, but then there's also a kind of a practical reality of people needing to get paid for their work. I think especially um, I think this especially shows up for, um, you know, for Malamids, like for, for people whose job it is to, to teach kids. Um, yeah, so it matters quite a bit. Yeah. Any more questions? Um, just like bringing up what you've mentioned about how learning in a kolal can be playful. Do you think there's any connection between like the classic like yeshiva masechtas and I guess like a more fun, more theoretical learning than say you know learning you know something very practical like kolachalamaisa? Yeah, it's there. Certainly, is a kind of um, the the choice about what to learn. I think has some aesthetic properties. Like there's a sense of like what is it? What is the experience going to be for my students? So like work their way through brachot versus through psachim versus through moed katan, like those all have very different feels. And there is a um, part of the choice of, of, of choosing one of those is choosing like the kind of experience that you want to have your students. Um, so in a way, like it feels like, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, they're so different that it's almost hard to talk about them as being, you know, the same species. I, I, you know, I experience this with my son now. My son and I are like, you're going through Siddur's Ryan, right? We had one experience going through Brachot. We have a very different experience right now going through Masechet Mai. Um, and that's like, that's good. <laughs> um, the question is like, what's the right order to do them in? Um, well, but, but yeah. I'm sorry, why don't you play Monopoly with your kids? <laughs> you want the real answer? I don't play Monopoly with my kids. Uh, first of all, because we play we play other we other, uh, play other board games, um, but also because um, Monopoly. This is this is un we're at the end of the class, so this is unrelated to the class. Um, there are two there are two species of of board game in the world today. There is North American board games and European board games. Uh -huh. They're both um, outgrowths of World War II. Uh -huh. American board games are all about absolute winning mm -hmm. and absolute losing. And it's important that if you win, the win can be seen from a mile off, which is what Monopoly is. Whereas European board games like Settlers of Catan are like, let's all build together. We're going to rebuild something. We're all going to work in parallel. And then eventually someone wins, but like the winning doesn't matter so much. So those I, I enjoy more. Okay, I like it. This, this, this class was not sponsored by Settlers of Catan or any other board game. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. The question, right? The answer that you shouldn't use Torah as a tool, right? As a particular kind of tool, right? It's interesting because I think I think it exists in tension with this with this idea, right? It exists in tension with the idea that there is a way in which the Torah is being imagined as being a kind of tool, even while the rabbis are are kind of conscious and um, and careful about not um, um, not bending Torah 
to their own needs or to their own, you know, their own desired outcomes. And I think like this actually goes back to the story about, um, about Rabbi Meir, uh, about the rabbis kind of both being in awe of his facility with Torah and also saying like, at some point, something needs, like, something that's pure needs to be rendered pure. Like you can't just say that it's impure because you're so smart. Like you actually have to make it pure. Uh, Jason, I think you're gonna get the last comment. Uh, you're saying that Torah isn't this tool that they can bend to their will, but you you quoted a pasuk or not a pasuk, but like a line where it says explicitly that they like like 150 reasons to matahir sharets. Like it seems like I, my understanding is that part of the work of Torah is like if you want to make th something usher, you you make that thing forbidden, and if you want to make something kosher, you make it permitted and like I think with electricity that's a prime example like the rabbis really tried arguably to make it forbidden to use electricity on Shabbat so like I, I don't know I, I yeah yeah look I think this is not just true for Torah but for any kind of occupation that a person has um, you often find you often are aware that like the the kinds of things you can do with your power or with your skill set is you know, contains things that are both moral and right and good and things that are beyond that. I think like certainly like, you know, programmers certainly have a sense all the time that you have a huge amount of power at your disposal. Um, and I think part of what it means to, to kind of like live inside of a craft is to both have that ability to, to hone it because it's important to be able to have the ability to, you know, to be as dexterous as possible, but also recognize like there is a certain window of responsible activity. Um, and it's those two things actually can't be separated. Um, it was a pleasure learning with all of you tonight. This is wonderful. And uh, I'm excited to learn with you next week when we talk about Shabbat. All right. And it's also a pleasure to have you teach. Um, everyone is strongly encouraged to come back uh, next week at uh, the same time, 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern Daylight Time. So if you are joining from outside U.S somewhere where US uh, time zones don't, don't mean anything, I will send that to you in GMT. Um, if you are interesting, interested in learning more with Trisha this week, we have a new, we have a, ser a series of one-off classes on kind of Torah Ukraine coming up, including with the next one being Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern with Rabbi Ellie Fisher on the topic of responsive from Ukraine, halacha as a window into human lives. Otherwise, have a good night. The class recording will be posted shortly. And, and uh, enjoy your rest of your evening. <laughs>